So today is the third in a series of conversations we're focusing on. First letter that Peter wrote, uh, one of Jesus' best friends. And you should have had in your program this morning a sermon note card, and it actually has the scripture. I included that because almost always here at Gateway, I preach from the New International Version, which is just an English version language of the Bible. Today we're going to be looking at the English Standard Version, which is another English translation, and I'll tell you why. I saw when you came in this morning, I realized immediately, I looked at this group and I thought, this is a group that's just hungering for a grammar lesson. So I want you to know that obviously every language is different, and and Greek is a different kind of language than English. English, you sort of you get a lot of signals about what the word means and the how and the whys. You get grammatical cues based on where the word is in the sentence. So the word order of a sentence is not only important, it's critical. In English, it tells you everything. That's not necessarily the case in Greek. In Greek, they load up the word with all kinds of beginnings and endings, and those beginnings and endings kind of tell you how the word functions in the sentence and what it modifies. There's also a a special kind of verb in Greek We have them in English, too. I didn't know any of this until, by the way, I started learning a little bit about New Testament Greek. And the New Testament, by the way, was written in Greek. So when we read it in English, it's a translation. The Greek language uses the participial verb in a lot of interesting ways that English doesn't use. So participle, if you think participle, think I-N-G at the end of it. So kind of like this, you know, I went running and skipping And running and skipping are two verbs that are participle. And they kind of support the main verb, I went. Well, participles in Greek are used in a lot of interesting ways. If you want to know more about this, by the way, honestly, part of our congregation, Bill Russell, has considerable facility with New Testament Greek. He's taking a group of people through uh, New Testament Greek. Several of our folks are doing this. So if you'd like to know more about this, those of you who just... This five-minute lesson just does not satisfy your hunger for grammar. Then talk to Bill afterwards. He'll be happy to share more with you ad nauseum. But the the participles do not tend to be main verbs. They can be, but they don't tend to be main verbs. They tend to be verbs that are in support of other verbs. Again, like Ed went running and skipping. And running and skipping are two participial ideas, verbs that support the main verb, Ed went. Well, because the participle is used in so many different ways in Greek, sorry for all of this, when they're translating the ancient Greek, the New Testament Greek, into you know, more modern, especially European languages, into English, they have to make decisions about how those participles are being used. Well, one of the things that I like about the English Standard Version, for any of you who read that version, they won't make as many interpretive decisions as the NIV does. Because, you know, when you're translating from one language to another, you have to make some decisions. Well, the uh, English Standard Version, if this makes any sense, will impose less of their interpretation on the text than the NIV tends to. And that especially showed up in our passage. So we're going to be looking at the English Standard Version of the text today, because it more effectively highlights the main verbs of our passage. And those main sort of anchor verbs are the the thrust. They give us the real heart 
of what Peter is telling us today. What Peter does in the passage today is, in a great way, he pivots from what he's been talking about, which has kind of been like introduction leading up to this. Today he pivots toward, okay, how should you behave? So he's writing to a group of people who are facing a cultural situation where the culture is moving away from them, perhaps aggressively so. They're beginning to sense, feel, echoes, rumors of maybe bad times for people who follow Christ on the horizon. And into that situation, Peter is writing and he's telling them what they should do, how they should respond. Interestingly, for you and I, we face a similar cultural moment. Not as dramatic, but we do face a similar cultural moment. The culture, P.S., is moving away from us. Now, you interact with the culture passively. Every time you watch a cat video on YouTube or you look at a TED Talk or you watch television or you watch a movie or you listen to music, you interact with the culture actively when you go buy something or when you interact with people at work or you're doing a project or you're interacting with your neighbors or you vote. So we're constantly interacting with the culture and we have to be honest and acknowledge together that the culture is moving away from us. Let me just give you a a couple of examples of that. I'll be trotting out many of these over the next few weeks in our time together. I heard recently there is a new statistical category for statisticians and demographers who like to count people and put them in categories. There's a new category that's gaining in popularity. It's called the nuns. That's N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. It seems this is becoming popular. People like to refer to themselves as a nun, like think the category religious affiliation, check nun. They like to think of themselves that way because atheism and agnosticism, it has too much of a negative stigma to it. So that they're calling themselves increasingly the nuns. And the nun category has statistically grown uh, in the United States every year since the year 2000. Now, 23% of our culture considers themselves none. But perhaps more incredible than that, 89% of the 23%, so some of you who are really good in algebra can figure out what the overall percentage of that is, but 89% of the 23%, and this figure has grown incredibly over the last 15 years, 89% of the 23% that call themselves none say that they have absolutely no interest in religion. So when asked the question, well, hey, what would get you to go to church? Nothing. They're not seekers. They're not out looking for answers. This is a settled position. I am a nun. Let me give you one other just data point. Again, we'll be trotting out several of these, but just one more for today. The Pew Charitable Trust conducts constantly they're doing research and and surveys, but they've done a religion and public life project. That's what they're calling it. For the last seven years, they've been tracking international and U.S. attitudes toward religious liberty. If you want a, a lecture, again, ad nauseum about religious liberty, then talk to our friend Rob Showers. And he'll give you some uh, startling, alarming trends in our culture away from religious liberty. And religious liberty, for instance, is what allows us to do this. 
to hold worship in a public space. It, it's what allows you to take a tax deduction when you mail in your taxes tomorrow. Those of you who are going to be staying up all night doing them, when you mail your taxes in tomorrow, you take a tax deduction for your contribution to Gateway. Religious liberty is what allows for that. Well, the Pew Charitable Trust has done this um, survey, as I said, this project, this survey project, this research project, over the last seven years, tracking attitudes toward religious liberty around the world. And as you might imagine, for instance, countries like Saudi Arabia and China, they, they score very low on religious liberty. Typically, the United States historically has scored as high as any nation in the world on religious liberty. However, they measure two things in this project. They measure government restriction of religious activity and they measure social hostility toward religious activity. And it won't surprise you that on uh, both indicators, government restriction and on uh, social hostility toward religious activity, the U.S. score has gone up every year since 2007. They kind of rank their scores. It's a very specific score, but they rank their scores in these categories, low, moderate, high, and extremely high. So, for instance... Between the year 2007 and 2011, in the year 2011, for the first time, the U.S. moved from low to moderate on the government restriction scale. Interestingly, this tended to be, contrary to what you might be thinking, this tended to be because of decisions that were made at the local level and not at a national level. So, with this passage, Peter begins to talk to us about how? how? How should we live? How do we relate as we're watching our cat videos, as we're talking to our neighbor, as we're going to the local sub- suburban housewives party? How do we relate? How do we interact? Who are we to be? How are we to behave in our culture? He's going to get real specific, but today, again, he's laying the foundation. He's pivoted toward behavior now, so today he's going to begin to talk about how we should behave in the midst of a culture that's moving away from us. So, let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word. So this is a reading from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13. So those of you who are dialing in on your phone, you might want to dial up the ESV, the English Standard Version. Chapter 1, verse 13, and I'll read through the end of the chapter and into chapter 2 in 1 Peter through chapter 2, verse 3. So let's hear God's word for us today. Therefore, as a result of everything I've said, everything Peter's talked about over our last two weeks, therefore, preparing your minds for action, one of those participial verbs, being sober-minded, another one of those participial verbs that sets up the main action, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children. They translate this one as a main verb, but this is another one of those participial verbs. Do not be conforming or do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And then this, I believe, this next section is a little bit of an aside. He's teeing off on this idea of holiness. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy, God said in Leviticus. 
Secondly, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each person's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile here. And third, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. And I'm going to have a comment about 18 through 21 in a second. But follow this. If you're reading alone at home, you're thinking, wait, what's he talking about? And he has departed from his main argument here, hasn't he? I'll explain why in a minute. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feud always inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And now back to his argument. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God for all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flowers of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the the good news that was preached to you, that word of the Lord. We preached to you the good news. So, chapter 2, putting away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander like newborn babes, long for, crave, the NIV says, the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow into salvation. That's your means of growing, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Father, we pray that our hearts would be open, you'd fill us this morning, mind, heart, will, God, we want you. We pray this morning that you would visit. Lord, if there's anybody here that doesn't have a connection with you, I pray that you could speak in a way that they could understand. And thank you for Jesus and for what you've done on our behalf, for who you're making us. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, four points. Point number one, if we're going to live within our culture as followers of Christ and relate effectively in God-honoring ways, first of all, if we're going to live within our culture as followers of Christ and relate effectively in God-honoring ways, then we must set our hope on the grace that will be given us when Jesus Christ is revealed. We must set our hope on the grace that will be given us when Jesus Christ is revealed. Literally, the Greek word is hope, but Many commentators will say it's written with such force in the Greek that most English translators translate it something like, set your hope, fix your hope, because this is a big stinking deal, fully on the grace to be given when Jesus Christ is revealed. We have to resist the tendency to have our hopes settle on more superficial things, regardless of how important they are. Things like obvious, like our bank account, Things like our health, it's changing. Things like our children, we know our hope is set on something other than it should be, let's say, when our disappointment or our anger surrounding that issue is unrelenting or more pervasive or stronger than it should be. 
For instance, think what happens when your child doesn't get picked for the travel team. Or when your child doesn't test into some advanced academic program. When your anger or your frustration is pervasive and unrelenting, it very well could be a sign that you have your hope set on the wrong thing. You've allowed your hope to settle on something that's critically important and your bank account is. We're trying to pay for a building. I pray for your bank accounts. Your children are preeminently important, but we cannot allow our hope to settle on those things. While some of these things may be important, they should not be the resting place for our hope. They can't provide a rest. They're not strong enough. That's not how we were designed. Keeping our hopes properly set will require, Peter assures us, preparedness and sober-mindedness. This was especially important for Peter's readers, right? They were living in a culture that was moving away from them rapidly and moving in the direction of persecution. Peter knew that there was a chance that things would get dicey for them. They had to be prepared, but not prepared to take up arms They had to be prepared to set their hope in the right direction. And they had to be sober-minded. This word, obviously, just like in English. In Greek, it meant literally, don't get drunk. Peter's using it figuratively. Don't get drunk with your hopes set in the wrong direction. This means in part, let's drop the sense, let's drop the attitude that God should deliver us from facing any kind of difficulty. In fact, Jesus told his followers just the opposite. And you and I need to be sober-minded about that. Be prepared. Know that there will be difficulties and challenges. This world is not our home. Everything does not work out as it should. And be sober-minded. That means let's don't bury our heads in the sand. For example, let's don't chase pleasure as a way of escaping what the difficult truth that's confronting us. A personal example might be, I I thought about this as thinking about Peter's point, I thought about my marriage to Diane, and I think one of the keys to the happiness of my marriage to Diane, and especially early in our marriage, is Diane and I dated for almost five years before we got married. Now, I'm not recommending that to everyone, but it worked for, well, it worked for me. It didn't work as well for Diane, but it worked for me. And during that time, a part of what happened for me is I wasn't one of those people who was thinking, I can't wait till I get married. She completes me. I was crazy about Diane. But I loved being single. And I knew that being married was going to be tough. There was going to be joy. There was going to be awesome. going to be some great advantages. But I knew that we'd have to work on it, and I'd have to always tell her my schedule, and, uh, and, you know, Diane's really organized, and I'm really not, and then there were going to be conflicts, and I knew she was delightful and amazing, but I knew it was going to take work, and I was sober-minded. I had an appropriate expectation set, and I was very prepared I knew that Diane would not nor could not. I knew it. 
Diane and I do some premarital counseling. We can tell when we tell couples it's going in here, but it's not necessarily going here. I knew that Diane could not and would not meet all of my needs. I knew it. I knew that this ultimately was not going to make me happier. And statistics have proven over and over again that your relative self-test, relative happiness before you got married is the same relative happiness that you have after you get married. Time and time again, statistics have proven that. There's a bump in happiness for a while, and then it settles back down to you're the same person. And I knew this would be the case. I was prepared, and I was sober-minded. So when Diane and I faced difficulty, honestly... It didn't throw me off my game. I was prepared. And I told her for probably the first three years we were married, we didn't have very many difficulties. I kept saying to her over and over again, wow, this is awesome. If I'd known it was going to be this easy, I would have done it a long time ago. (laughs) Set your hope on the grace to be given when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's the first action for you and I. When we think about how to confront the culture, how to relate to the culture, set your hope on a place that can support your hope. Make no mistake. Look, let's be clear. Make no mistake. This is a very pointed encouragement for us to think about eternity. Look, pause for a second. There is a clear call in our faith toward seeing God's kingdom advanced here and now, seeing good things happen, seeing justice be done. And there's clear teaching that our lives are to be lived abundantly right now, that Jesus offers us the path to increased joy and fulfillment. And if you do not have a connection with God, you need to know that's offered to us right now. But that has to be balanced with the recognition that our lives here will never fully satisfy. Our needs will never be perfectly and fully met here. If we're going to live effectively within our culture, then we've got to prepare our minds for action, be sober-minded, and set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Secondly, if we're going to live within our culture as followers of Christ and relate effectively in God-honoring ways, then we must be holy in all of our conduct. In this case, the word holy here means primarily morally pure and righteous, like God, doing good things, doing right things. I want you to notice that this verse starts out, and you can see verse 14, it starts out with the phrase, as obedient children. And this is an interesting phrase. One commentator, I'm going to spend a moment here. One commentator said about this, obedient children is not a strong enough rendering. He said it like this, the form this adjective takes, obedient, The form this adjective takes is not simply one of quality that fastens on, but instead it fastens on the idea of an essential property or role of the person described. What he's saying, let me straighten that out, is Peter's saying that he's not just offering a description as obedient children, but he's suggesting something like this. You are the children who might most comprehensively be described as obedient. In fact, obedience is the prevailing characteristic of your life. So let me offer an illustration. We've got a a group of people who are going on a short-term mission trip in in summer in June, and they're being led by Emily Knox and Kevin Blino, and they're going to the DR to work with Ina, who's one of our partners that we help uh, support. Great group. So I want you to imagine we were to say, hey, describe Kevin Blino for me, and you would say, well... He's the guy back there who can't believe that uh, Ed is pointing him out, and he's got a beard. He's devastatingly handsome, white guy, American guy, Kevin Bellino, you know, mid-20s. Did you catch that? Okay, now let's describe Kevin Bellino 
in the DR context. Kevin Bellino, white guy, bearded guy, mid-20s, devastatingly handsome, who is American. And that says volumes. For you and I, that's a speed bump. Of course he's American. But put him in the DR, and now that becomes more than just a descriptor. Now it attaches itself to him in a gigantic way. You and I are children who are obedient. So be holy. Interestingly, the the actual verb here is just an aside. The real verb is be. (laughs) That's the main verb. Holy appears as a noun and as an adjective in this verse, not really as the verb. Now, I'm not trying to make a big deal out of that. Clearly, Peter is communicating be holy. But it's worth noting that we spend a lot of time, you and I, as human doings. While these first followers of Christ, I believe, were more effective human beings. He adds to this that we should not be conformed. Literally, we should not be conforming to the passions of our former ignorance. And the word conform here literally refers to a mold into which a substance is poured and whose shape it therefore determines. So think of like a Christmas cookie that's a Santa Claus or a reindeer or a Christmas tree, the mold. And that's what he's saying. Don't be molded. Don't be conforming. And think of the mold into which you and I are being poured. Think of how prevailing and how powerful and how specific that mold is. This is what a suburban housewife looks like, the mold tells us. These are the kinds of dresses she wears. These are the kinds of shoes she wears. This is what her figure looks like. If you don't think that this is a prevailing and powerful mold, I want you to imagine that uh, Susie Bonnet has a party for some of her friends, and she invites some people from the neighborhood and some people from, who are moms from Emily's school, and they come over to Susie's house for an afternoon tea. I don't know what suburban housewives do. And she invites Diane, and Diane shows up to the party. This is me as Diane showing up to the party. Ding dong. And Susie opens the door, and Diane is in a pink tutu and a tiara. This will now become the topic of conversation at the party because she does not look like what a suburban housewife is supposed to look like. The mold shapes virtually every aspect of our lives. This is what a suburban kitchen looks like. More specific than that, these are what the countertops of a suburban kitchen look like. This is where suburban kids go to college. These are the kinds of activities that suburban kids should be engaged in. Peter says, do not be conforming to that mold. Do not allow yourself to be poured into that shape. But be holy in all of your conduct. Paul has a convicting word about this same topic. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul says, some of you know this little section. Paul says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, in view of God's mercy, he says. And this is interesting. Then, if you're transformed by the renewing of your mind, if you're not conformed to the pattern of the world, if you're transformed, then, Paul adds this, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. You want to know what God's will is for your life? Then be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be poured into the mold. And little by little, you'll know, this is what God wants for me. That clearly can't be what God wants for me. You'll be able to test and approve. Then in the following verse, uh, Peter gives us some motivation for holiness. So he says in verse 16, God is holy. Enough said. 
God is the blueprint. You were designed to be like him. In fact, you want to be like him. It's what you were made for. It's your heart's desire, so pursue it. Second piece of motivation, God will judge your deeds. We like to forget this aspect of God. The other night, Bill and and, uh, Dean Salami and John Malala and I were talking about Scripture because whenever we get together, we always do deeply spiritual things. And we ended up talking about this, God's judgment and how we like to forget this. We like to think about God as love and we forget that God is just and he is our judge. He will judge and he will judge and look at the modifier he gives. He will judge impartially. And you and I are counting on the fact that God will grade on the curve, especially for us because we're the good guys, but he doesn't. God will judge impartially, so we should live in fear. We should be holy. Third motivator, our connection to God is based on the fact that we were rescued. So be holy. You were rescued. The word here is ransom. That word ransom translates a Greek word that was a technical term for the money paid for a prisoner of war or paid to set a slave free. So a price was paid for you. He goes on, it was a very costly price. It was the precious blood of Christ. The the end of the uh, Tom Hanks movie, Saving Private Ryan, you remember that? Tom Hanks is, uh, those of you who have seen it, Tom Hanks has taken several bullets, I can't remember, but at least one. He's lying next to the bridge. They're about to accomplish the mission. Warning, sorry, giving away the end if you haven't seen it, but uh, if you haven't seen it, then... You're probably not going to. So he's, he's sitting next to the bridge, and he's dying, and Matt Damon is sitting beside him, and he's, Matt Damon is the purpose of the movie. He's Private Ryan who's being saved again. Sorry, spoiler alert. Tom Hanks looks at him and says, earn this. <laughs> because all of these people died to save you. Peter's saying, earn this. The precious blood of Christ was shed for you. Earn this. The next section, we're going to call this a creed. I think it feels like an aside to the main argument because it is. I think what Peter has done is he's kind of gotten lost here. He's in the middle of his argument, but he started talking about Jesus and he can't help himself. So he launches in and he piles on these creedal statements, one on top of the other. What he's really doing is he's probably quoting either from a a really popular song that they would sing when they would gather together, the Christians in, in this part of the world, or he might be literally quoting from catechism. Some of you grew up in churches where they used catechism. And and in this period of history, most people weren't literate. So they would train young Christians through a catechism. And they they would literally memorize questions and answers. And and he's giving them what are probably a series of creedal statements here. Let me tell you some of the reasons why most people think these, these are a series of creedal statements. One, much of the detail is extraneous to the argument, as I said, to the main argument. It feels like an interruption to Peter's main point. It kind of is. And secondly, it covers really traditional themes in similar ways with similar language to many other New Testament passages. We see these sorts of phrases used a number of times. One writer put it like this. These verses are clearly packed with liturgical tags. He means that Peter's just throwing out phrases from the songs or, or creeds that they would have been very familiar with. And also during this, he mixes his metaphors. I mean, that's not a really big deal, but he starts out talking about ransom and he ends up talking about sacrifice. But here's the section I'm talking about. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with per- perishable things such as silver or gold, isn't that beginning to sound sing-songy like, like a creed, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without 
blemish or spot and perhaps now another liturgical tag. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but made manifest in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, maybe now another liturgical tag, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God some other time. We'll deal with this creedal statement because it just says some incredible things about Jesus. It's worth you contemplating later, but let's go on. Peter's third point, love one another. We are to love one another purely and earnestly. And interestingly, the word here is Philadelphia. And some of you know, that's the Greek word brotherly love. What he's saying here is love one another. The love I'm focusing on here, you guys, is you loving one another. So if Peter were here this morning and making this point, he would be saying to you and I, when you come here on Sunday morning, don't come here to sit and be filled or be dazzled. Hey, preacher boy, tell me something. Come here to be active. There are people here this morning who have cancer. There are people here this morning who have lost friends. There are people here this morning whose marriages are struggling. There are people here who have lost family. There are people here this morning who feel like they're on the edge of financial ruin. There are people here this morning who have been through the most traumatic experience of their lives in the last month. And you and I pass one another here and say, Morning, love one another. This almost seems out of place. He said, be holy, set your hope on heaven, you know, be sober. He's, all those sound like these religious ideas. But love one another sounds a little out of place until we remember that this is the heart of what it means to be a Christ follower. We're never asked to be good for goodness sakes. That's not God's point. That's what I thought the point was when I was younger, checking the box and doing what my mom told me and not having any fun, doggone it. We're never asked to be good for goodness sake. We're asked to be good so that we might be better at loving. Jesus hung his entire ministry on this frame. So where does this come from? What's the basis of this? The foundation for this love is that we really get along, right? Of course not. Well, the foundation for this love is that you're becoming more religious and you're becoming easier to get along with, right? No, take it from me, no. The foundation of this love is that we have so much in common, you and I, right? No. The foundation is that we have purified our souls by obedience to the truth. Think about that. Our obedience, it seems, is an agent toward helping us to be pure. And all of that helps us to love more effectively. I spent all day yesterday, Paul Howershell drugged me and Terry Eagle and Tim Eagle to a conference for CR, Celebrate Recovery. It's a great ministry we're going to be restarting at Gateway, aimed at helping people recover from hurts, habits, hang-ups, and addictions. And this was a room full of people. If you want to know more about it, ask Paul Howershell or Leanne Howershell. Ask Eric Saunders. This is a room full of people who are working very hard very practical steps toward helping themselves obey. And as they do, they're deepening in their purity. They sometimes gather weekly to rehearse their purity with one another. And there was incredible love in that room. Fourth, 
If we're going to live within our culture as followers of Christ and relate effectively in God-honoring ways, then we will long for spiritual nourishment. I like how Peter suggests that we must make room for this longing. We have to clear the decks, so to speak, right? We have to put away all sorts of stuff that hinder this longing. And I want you to look at the list of things that we are to put away. Putting away malice and and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Clearly, he's thinking about the point he's just made. These are all attributes that hurt the quality of our love for one another. So we've got to put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander so that we can long for pure spiritual milk. This is milk that's pure. It's undiluted, and it was the cultural habit at this time for moms in poor agricultural areas to water down their milk with water to make it last longer. And Peter says, no, you're to pursue the real deal, the good white stuff, pure spiritual milk. Long for it like a newborn baby who must have it in order to grow because you need it in order to grow. That's the condition in which we find ourselves. We need spiritual nourishment in order to grow. And he's certainly thinking about the Old Testament quote that he's just given. He's thinking primarily here about the Word. He's thinking, long for, crave this. Now, of course, he's referring to all sorts of spiritual activity, but he's got no question the word preeminently in mind. Now, someone here is thinking, Ed, I don't long for spiritual nourishment, honestly. I don't long to pray. I don't even want to be with Christians most of the time and have Christian fellowship. And if I'm honest, the Bible is just flat out boring. I almost never want to read it. Well, there are several possible explanations for that. I'm not going to take a lot of time with this, but I want to give you a couple just for you to think about and ruminate on. A couple possible explanations for this lack of longing in my heart and yours is, number one, you've gotten out of the habit. It's like exercise. You know, the more you do it, really, the more you want to do it, and and once you start, you're always, it just feels good to work up a sweat, and you're never sorry. You're never sorry you did it. You're always glad that you did. Spiritual exercise is the same. So get going. Some of you, to get yourself working out, you need a workout buddy to get yourself started. Find yourself a spiritual buddy to get yourself started. I want to give you a second possible explanation for this. You may not be in the place that Peter is referring to here. The phrase he's used a number of times is born again. You may not be born again. You may not have had God do a real new work in your life. You may not have experienced the kind of life change that Peter is assuming in this passage. Look how he ends verse 3 in our passage. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And I want you to know this morning, God is good. And he is here ready to change your life today and your heart. Today, he's ready today to offer you something brand new. We used the phrase last week, explosively new. He's here today ready to offer that to you. If I keep going, I'm going to sound like an old school evangelist. A real connection with God is freeing. It is in-purposing, and I made that word up. It gives us purpose. It connects us to the universe and and to ourselves. It's empowering and it changes us. Have you experienced that kind of change? If you have not, 
and you sense something tugging at your heart, I wasn't going to do this today. But if you have not experienced that kind of change and you sense something tugging at your heart, don't leave without having someone pray with you. There's going to be a group of people right down here after the service. I don't know what's going on, but I just sensed something as he was talking. Come and get them to pray. Is it weird? Yes. Who cares? Your life depends on it. Okay, let's end. Big picture response. It's, it's worth thinking about the big picture. It's worth backing up as we look at sort of responding to the culture and interacting with the culture. And we have to do that when we go to Susie's party. We have to do that when we're cutting the grass and we speak to a neighbor. We have to do that, again, when we're watching cat videos. We have to do that when we go to the store and buy things. We have to do that when we do our taxes. But it's worth thinking at it from a big picture. So let's do so. Let's back up because we're going to do this periodically during this series. We're even going to make reference to some of the things that are going on politically around us. So I want to offer three observations to end today that are big picture sort of response observations just to get you noodling. Number one, Jesus is not Spartacus. He's not advocating militant spiritual takeover. Sharia law is a Muslim concept, but there is no exact Christian equivalent. Do you hear me? Jesus is not Spartacus. Instead, Jesus is advocating that we recognize ourselves as exiles. This is not our home. He's advocating that we set our hope on what is our home. Secondly, Jesus is advocating that we conduct ourselves increasingly as God would literally conduct himself, that we exhibit moral purity and integrity. Thirdly, Jesus is advocating that we love one another. Our faith is a communal faith. Loving interactions is an integral part of our faith. We are not good for goodness sake. We are good so that we might love more effectively. And fourth, Jesus is advocating that we press into what makes us spiritually healthy, that we nourish, that we feed what we know gives us real life. Especially this should focus on the gospel story. Secondly, Jesus is not Che Guevara or Fidel Castro or Hugo Chavez. Jesus is not a radical political progressive. Now, look, I'm not telling you to apologize for your progressivism. I know that even in a crowd this small, there are bound to be, this isn't typical for suburban America, evidently, in this election, but there are bound to be at least three or four of you and maybe seven of you who are feeling the burn. So I'm not telling you to apologize You're in the context of a congregation that is mostly, because by virtue in large part of who we are, but we're mostly conservative. But there's no question that some of us are progressive. We're having a series of political discussions in the morning before church, by the way, that Kyle Jessup began today, and I want to encourage you to join, meeting just down the hall from from 9 to 10 o'clock, just to talk about some of this stuff honestly. So if you're feeling the burn, I want you to feel like, enter in. Join the dialogue here. And how dare you, any of you here who are conservative, if you make that kind of voice feel like it doesn't belong here? I'm not telling you to apologize for your progressivism, but I'm telling you that that is not the heart of Jesus' message. It's not the key to understanding how we should respond to the culture. Instead, number one, Jesus is advocating that we fix our hope on the grace that will ultimately be ours. Secondly, he's advocating that we be holy. Third, Jesus is advocating that we love one another earnestly. And fourth, Jesus is advocating that we crave pure spiritual milk and everything that we are and do rolls out from those. Finally, Jesus is not 
Isaac Perlmuter or Lee Iacocca. And let me explain, for those of you who don't know them, he's not a corporate CEO who specializes in turning around sagging companies. Jesus is not a highly driven capitalist. He's not a a cost-conscious, conservative, inspirational, system-driven leader. He's not looking for best business practices. Of course, it can be great if you're this kind of person, and if you have this kind of skill set, please talk to me afterwards. You do not need to apologize. If given the choice between being more productive or less productive, one should always choose to be more productive, assuming that we're talking about producing the right things. But then that's a critical caveat, isn't it? Thinking about and planning for the production of the right things is extremely challenging when you live in a culture that is dominated with a capital D by the profit margin. Jesus is not dominated by the profit margin. He simply does not care. Jesus instead is advocating, number one, that we fix our hope, not on the bottom line of the budget, but on the ultimate destiny of our lives. Two, he's advocating that we pursue being like God, regardless of the impact it has on our career. So if you're in a company where you need to cook the books or ignore certain practices in order to get ahead, then you obviously will not get ahead. Third, Jesus is advocating that we invest in community, that we love one another, and this will take time from other things. Fourth, Jesus is advocating that we prioritize what nourishes our spirit above our work schedules, above our physical workout, above our kids' schedules, above our diet. Jesus is not Spartacus. Jesus is not Che Guevara. Jesus is not Leia Coca. Instead, Jesus is growing within you the kind of character that will respond to the culture with grace and patience and care and without compromise. This will impact who you vote for, how you spend your money, how you train your children, how you use your free time. This will impact every aspect of your life. And then in turn, we will impact the lives of the others around us. Let's pray. Father, we bless you because you're good. And we pray that you would make us holy, that you would set us apart. We pray, Lord, that you would increase within us the longing for pure spiritual milk. We pray, Lord, that you would help us love one another. And Lord, we pray you would, this morning, help us to rivet our attention on the grace that would be given us when Jesus Christ is revealed. So we throw ourselves open to you. In the strong name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. And all God's people said, amen.